this is Jack Donovan, and you're watching PH2T3R Pater, the Journal of Solar Culture. And uh, this is our second live show, and I'm here, obviously, with uh, C.B. Robertson, uh, author of many fine books. We wanted to talk today about creating meaning. And last, our last episode, we talked about uh, the meaning crisis and then what meaning means and all thing, all kinds of things like that. But see people talking about finding meaning in life. It's like they're Indiana Jones. Like they need to go out and find meaning. There's a special thing out there that they need to find. And once they find meaning, they'll have it. And I think there are a lot of people who would like to sell you meaning as well. But I wanted to talk today about the extent to which we're empowered to create meaning because we can, the meaning is always there. It's not like your life doesn't have meaning until you find meaning. Uh, you need to actually create meaning in your life. And there are many ways that you can do this aside from the fact that you know, you're going to have meaning, some meaning, if you like anyone or care about anything, you're going to have something meaningful in your life. But there are other ways that you can make your life more meaningful. And that's, you know, people try to find that by, you know, going out for, to religion. Uh, they look at the philosophy, they look at all kinds of different things. And all these things are answers uh, and things that can add depth and meaning to your life. But uh, today we want to talk about some, some more ways uh, that you can use that, to do that. So anyway, that's my, that's my uh, spiel for this. We'll see if I can cut it up into a clip later. <laughs> but so I have a whole bunch of things. I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about first objects and spaces, um, which is an interesting place because people will say, if you say, I, what's, what matters in life? And you start to talk about things, people will be like, well, things don't matter. That's, you know, things don't matter, you know, and it's true. You know, if you were going to run out, if my house is on fire, I wouldn't worry about things, you know, it'd be the people and the animals first and then probably I need to rush back and get my passport or something that can prove that I exist, you know, but uh, beyond that, there are things, you know, of course those things mean more and ideas actually mean a lot. Uh, an idea is definitely something that's in your head that no one can take away from you. Actually the idea of Voldgang, uh, uh, the guy who wrote that originally, Ernst Jünger, uh, that was really what that was, that there was this kernel of life that you could keep inside yourself in a deeply oppressive society. And that was where the meaning was. You know, so if you don't have anything else, you can keep that. And that's that's a good if you're in prison or something like that. We're, we're not quite there yet. Uh, but there are other ways that you can do that if you don't have anything else. And I, I also uh, talked briefly this week, actually, on uh, X, because uh, I have some experience. I used to be a tattoo artist. And tattoos are ways that people add a, a map of meaning really on their on their bodies. And my theory is that uh, wealthier people look down on tattoos. Uh, it's not as much now because celebrities have them, but a lot of wealthier people look down on tattoos because wealthy people display their identity with assets, assets and businesses and 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 uh, philanthropy and all this kind of thing. They they display their status in a different way. A poor man only has his skin. Uh, you can take that anyway. No one can take that away from you. I think that's why their uh, tattoos are so popular, even in prison. Uh, you know, like there's, there's, they're in a place where they're trying to dehumanize you. He, I have a story, is what tattoos say, and that's what, that's what you know, meaning is really about. When especially when it comes to things, and we're to talk, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. 
is that, you know, it's really giving an object a story. You know, meaning, meaning is about story. It's about narrative. We talked last week about, you know, a narrative structure for a living. I mean, that's what people are looking for to a certain extent. And all these little pictures on you that mean something to you, uh, that, that shows, that demonstrates the meaning. Um, so, but, so I, I'll jump into this and you can jump in with anything at any time. Like I said, I have a spiel uh, ready to go on this one. Cause I've been writing an essay about it that I'm going to put in our new book that we're going to come out with uh, soon. Uh, but I tried to break it down into four kinds of meaningful objects. And another thing was my, my other thing to handle objections about talking about the meaning in objects is, you know, if objects don't mean anything, why would you go to a museum? Right. Why would you go to a museum or why would you visit an historic site? Like, Oh, it's something happened there. Who cares? It's narrative. It's a story. There's something very like caustic in the, in the, the disregard of an object as uh, just an object. Like it, uh, it, it th there's a, a tacit claim almost that meaning can only exist in some ethereal non-material plane with no connection to physical objects. Like to most people, if you own, you know, a, um, a piece of furniture that your grandfather uh, carved, you know, right. like, like a, a rocking chair that he made with his own hands and put all of his work and his money into the best of wood and, and whatever, and put put some artistry and skill and time into crafting this heirloom object, you know, it's clearly not just a chair. And anyone who, who says that is, is be being mean, <laughs> borderline sociopathic. Like this is clearly, it has meaning that comes from the connection that you have to another person through this object. And, and many objects, uh, can act like that. And I'm, I'm sure we're about to talk a little bit about how one goes about loading objects in that way. But um, the, my, my interest, and I'm sure that we'll get back to this at some point is where do you find the, the bedrock for like, where does any of this value come from in the first place? It can't just be nature because um in, in philosophy, there's what's called the naturalistic fallacy. Just because things are a certain way doesn't mean that they ought to be or, or have to be or should be necessarily. People get broken arms in nature. Animals get uh, broken limbs. It doesn't mean that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it just is that no ought follows from nature. So where do oughts come from if we're searching for purpose in this discussion of meaning um, is an interesting question, and maybe we'll we'll get there by way of uh, thinking about objects, maybe in the way Pl Plato got to justice by thinking about the city or or something. Possibly, possibly. I mean, I think yeah. You know, one of the things I, w I was putting out there with this is that you know when we talk about objects, you know, people complaining about not having any meaning in their life. You know, if you live in a rented space full of uh, objects that you bought at target mm. um, that, you know, like you, your, your entire surround, everything around you is mass produced and disposable. It's the, uh, why, it's why, the why, why do you think Fight you club. feel mass, <laughs> mass produced and disposable? It's, it's the, it's the apartment from fight club. Yeah. 
yeah, 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 yeah. All, all the which which one sit, uh, represents me between these different mass-produced objects? And it's like, oh, well, none of them, but <laughs> I'm well, stuck yeah. with the choice. Even that is a way to create meaning. So I'll, I'll go. I'll start with yeah. this. But uh, yeah, there's all different levels of this. And my four categories of, of uh, creating meaning with objects are aesthetically meaningful objects. Uh, symbolically or representationally meaningful objects, uh, objects with inherited narrative, and objects loaded with narrative. So there may be more. This is my brainstorming is what I've come up with, or at least of things that I want to talk about. Um, and uh, the the uh, what 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 uh, dinnerware best suits my personality. That is the aesthetically meaningful. Uh, it's just, it's just aesthetic, but in the sense of, we have this great character in, in the order of fire named Vic. And I always bring him up as like, he is a graphic novel character in the sense that like you can, there's a very specific, you could draw what car he should be in. You know how he looks. He always wears black. He has a certain kind of jewelry that he wears. Um, you know, he has, just has a very established character. I mean, cause he's lived an interesting life and has decided who he is and he knows himself. And he decided, and and people could draw me. I think in most cases, like uh, you know, or at least my Instagram version of myself. You know, I, they, you know it's, uh, I'm not wearing a shirt, and I have brown pants on, and I'm bald, and I'm standing in front of a mountain. Uh, you know, but uh, you know, there's a certain uh, thing that I bring to it. But choosing things that are like this chair, uh, I spent a long time picking out this chair because it's the, the chair, and yes, it's mass produced, uh, but it's what I wanted to represent my vision, you right. know, like if, or the best that I could afford. There's, there's better ones, but this is the one that I could afford. Um, and the same thing. So there's so many things that you can pick out and surround yourself with rather than just, I think a lot of men actually just let their wives pick out everything yeah. and live in a complete, they live in their environment. You I, know? I wonder if the fight club critique is not so much because um, you're right. You can, foster an aesthetic environment that is either congruent or not congruent perhaps with with who you are and or who you want to be the, the i think i think what what palanek was was trying to tap into is the feeling that the the limitations of the curated options that are presented to men as the you know are you an infj or an entp and the guy who says you know maybe myers briggs personality you know, breakdowns aren't uh, aren't a complete description of who I am, or aren't even a particularly meaningful description of where I am. Maybe the options that Target has available for chairs don't really capture uh, what I'm trying to be. Especially if all of them are constrained by higher aesthetic notions of the the constraints that men should be within. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, uh, you're probably not going to find anything particularly congruent with men's ideal of who they want to become uh, at a target, or at least not very many, maybe some, but. Uh, well, they're all kinds of different men with all kinds of different. <laughs> aspects too. Uh, but um, true. true, Yeah. And, and finding that actually make, gives your life meaning. Like, like what is my character? What I think, I think everybody should sit and have the uh, discussion with themselves is like, what does my ideal version of myself, this comic book character version of myself, the, the when they play me in the movie or whatever, 
what what does he wear? What is he? What is, what is what kind of things are around him? What is it? What what is his? You know, what are the objects in his space? What would he, what is his what is his secret lair look like? You know, like uh, you know, it's it, it doesn't have to be. It's not going to be the same for everyone. It would depending on your character. If you if you're a guy who likes who thinks he's a lumberjack, uh, you know, or is into stuff like that, maybe you're. Yeah, your your lair is littered with like half loaded weapons and and uh, <laughs> and, and sharpening things, you know, and, and you, everything is a flannel and like whatever. It, it there's a lot of different characters that you could be, even as a man. Um, I mean, my personally, everybody's gonna laugh at this because you know I don't think laugh at it, but I th- I think it's very very refined. But I decide that I I liked a couple years ago, um, uh, uh, fat lava. Uh, brutalist pottery from West Germany in the 1970s. And I went down an Etsy rabbit hole and I have about five pieces of these things. And like, but I didn't get those at Target. Like I, I imported them from Germany and they're like, like, I like that. <laughs> I like that specific thing. Yeah. And like I said, that's that, that has more of a, that thing from Germany has more of a story to it than the thing from Target. And it has a right. different value. And I think, when you look at wealth people, again, it's the, the things that they collect, they collect things for stories. I, um, I, my good uh, old friend, um, Trevor Blake, uh, is, is a rare book appraiser. And he told me when I sign books, I, yes, they're valuable because they're signed. They're more valuable. If you sign them with a date, you're more, they're more valuable. If you sign them with a date and a place. Um, and then it becomes like, who's, book like you you actually got book plates recently okay whose library has this book been in because now this book has a history this book has a history and a story and so when you're selling something that's a rare book you know like then then that all that stuff feeds into the value of it and that's a way and you know like you know so if you're if you're a wealthy person you you might pick out things with that in mind like all of that it's not just a book you know it's not just an edition of the odyssey because i'm looking at your bookshelf it's yeah. not just an edition of the Odyssey, but it's a, uh, you know, it was the first edition of this translation, and it was, you know, it's a rare bound book. You know, there's all these different versions of that that can make, there, you know, make you more interesting. You know, like yeah. uh, here's a story of this. Here's the story of this. Here's the story of this. Are you going to share your book plate? Is that what you're going to? Well, um, this one actually doesn't have it in yet because I've only okay. been I've only been stamping the ones that we have uh, read all the way through, and I have not read it. But like, um, just acquiring rare books like that. Some of the books that you go about acquiring are mass produced and available everywhere. Like you can get a Bible literally anywhere. Um, maybe not every kind of Bible, but um, this is one I'm particularly proud of: the uh, Myth of Return in Early Greek Epic by Doug Frame. Um, because it was personally recommended to me by my favorite living philologist, Greg Nagy, who is a friend of Doug Frames. And most of the titles you can find of this book are like $200 or so. Um, I, I managed to get this one for like 80, but it's, uh, it's, it's not a cheap, but there's something extra valuable, uh, in going out of your way to that. And I don't say all that to, to, um, I wasn't trying to bash on target either because, you know, personal style can be. Um, what what's the word? It's an emergent, holistic, chaotic is not right. The right word. What's it called when you when you end up with something that is greater than the whole of the sum of its parts? Like 
There are an infinite number of possible aesthetics one could generate from Target alone. From what yeah, corner I only need so many t-shirts. I mean, a white right. t-shirt is a white t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. if that's part of my vibe, then that's part of my vibe. You know, like that's, yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not just that. It's just a matter of like the selection, you know, if yeah. you just walk in and pick out here, I think a lot of people, what they do, and you, there's a, there's a style of how, uh, of decoration that's very popular right now. I've seen, pe seen people make fun of it. Uh, is that like, oh, farmhouse modern, really? Uh, you know, because, you know, there, there's a certain style that like is very popular basically because people are going to sell their houses and right. they want it to be their, their, their house is disposable. So they, every, every house looks the same. And oh, okay, you're going to do the farmhouse. It's like, so basically you just walk into Crate and Barrel. We'll take that, <laughs> that, 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 and that. And that's your personality. Uh, women, <laughs> you know. Farmhouse modern. I as soon as, I'd never heard that phrase before, and as soon as you said it, I knew instantly what it was because we stayed in an Airbnb, Airbnb, uh, hanging out with my uh, in-laws on the or my family rather, not her her in-laws on the west side, and the Airbnb was exactly that. Although you got the the barn doors with the exposed rustic hinges, you have the like stay a while type signs hung on the wall in the kitchen. You have uh, like, um, you know, wood floors, which might or might not be real, but you know, that's okay. Um, uh, there's a certain, uh, it's not pastel color palette, but there's a, a certain color palette associated with that. Uh, I know exactly. a lot of like light grays and like whatever, but yeah, uh, you know, just a, it's, it's very nondescript kind of you know, like, Oh, anyone can live here, but it's kind of homey, but kind of cold. At the same time, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, there's yeah. something to it, but, but that's what I mean. Like it's, if there are people who do that and then again, where am I going to find meaning in life? Like, why is my life feel so like a cardboard cutout? Because that's how you bought it. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, but so well, it reminds me of a, of a fascinating, there's a, there's a wonderful little book um, about architecture called the, what was it called? It's by a guy named Whittled Ribzinski, mm -hmm. and I'm forgetting the title at the moment, but he it's a book about architecture, but he opens and talking about um, fashion, men's fashion, and um, the crossover between fashion and interior decor. Mm -hmm. And he talked about what, what, why is it that all of these wealthy guys um, are, are suddenly started wearing uh, polo shirts and these uh, kind of sailing shorts and the certain kind of shoes uh, in this particular combination, um, it became this like polo aesthetic. And the reason it was selling was because the, the style signified old money. And I don't remember if it was Ralph Lauren, but there was a crossover between Definitely. <laughs> the, the, the interior design movement and the uh, personal is that, and I, I was, I was, as you were describing, um, you know, designing your aesthetic on the inside, I, I already had um, Tanner Guzzi sort of in the back of my head, anticipating the guys who said, you know, real men don't care what they look like. Real men don't care what the inside of their house looks like. It's like, right. do they not do that? Do they really not? Because the most powerful men do mm -hmm. uh, the most successful men do. Yep. Um, and they, if you don't care about their, your aesthetic, uh, they will sell it to you, whether that's Ralph Lauren um, and that, or uh, 
by contrast, and and this is I think a, a particular subject of interest to me in the last couple of years. They will sell it to your wife, and she will put you in that. And guess what? Who's more of a I hate to say it, but it's kind of true. Who's more of a man in in her eyes, you or the guy who created the world that she's trying to inhabit now? Yeah. And a lot of a successful marriage that many men seem to have completely abdicated is in this world creation, which may or may not be identical to the task of meaning creation. Yeah, it's definitely there's some overlap there for sure. I mean, you're, you're creating your world. Really, and, and so like uh, that's every aspect of it. If you were writing, if you're George Martin or whatever, writing a fiction book, like what's what's the scene? Where what scene? Or what what story? Actually, and those are almost the exact words that you used last week in that quote. What is the nature of the story that I'm inhabiting? Right. <laughs> you know, that's uh, what 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 is it? What does it look like? What? But uh, so I wanted the objects of focus. Yeah, um, there was a quote I wanted to bring up. On the subject, because at some point in this conversation, I think it might be valuable to talk about dreams yeah. um, and the relationship between dreams and meaning in this way. Because it's, it's not one to one, but there is an interesting overlay. But there is, um, I mean, I find a lot of purpose and meaning uh, in Homer. Mm -hmm. And there's this wonderful quote from Friedrich Nietzsche um, where he, he says um, that Homer embodies a dreaming Greek. Man. And and his stories are very dreamlike in their orientation, uh, and and in their and how they hit our senses, the visual uh, descriptions portrayed, and in in finding meaning in our stories, we we can't control every event that happens to us. We can't control every object in our surrounding, but we can focus. Uh, we can change and modify the objects of focus, and what's so not just dreamlike. But what feels so pertinent to this conversation about creating meaning is what Homer chooses to focus on mm -hmm. in his in his epic. Because you'll be reading the Iliad and you'll be like, and this guy killed that guy and then that guy killed this guy and he screamed and fell and his armor clattered about him. And then uh, he, all these events are just happening. But then something will happen and a particular person will die and he'll say something and Homer will take the time to go back and say, and this man lived in this village where they raised this kind of sheep. And his father was a blacksmith and he inherited his father's craft and he was wonderful at doing this thing. And he takes the time to, to, to describe very particular things and attaches po like a poetical significance of attention to those objects. And it feels so much, there's a, um, completely parting ways from Homer in tone, but not in substance. There's an author named Robert Cialdini, perhaps you've heard of him, who's written books like Influence and Persuasion. He's a an influence manipulator marketing instructor. He teaches other people this game. And so much of his influence game is about directing attention. What are you focused upon? Um, not so much is the thing you're focusing on good or bad? Am I for it or against it? But just, just keeping your eyes on the desired object to focus. And um, so much of making meaning seems to be uh, about that. The, um, what, are we, what are we focused upon? What is worth paying attention to? Right. Well, and obviously uh, the focus thing is in itself is a photography metaphor. And uh, so that's what I hear when you say that all the time, because that's, it, 
when you can change your depth of focus in photography, um, you can actually change the story of the photograph. Uh, mm. Because because that's what you're it, like. Well, this has a variable depth of focus right now, so I can have it focused on right now. It's focused on my face because I don't want you to focus on my hand. Right. If I had it focused on my hand, it's telling a different story. Yeah. The, you know, and and the same thing. Um, same thing. It's like if you have a fire hydrant and a little girl out in the street. If you're focused on the fire hydrant and the little girls in the background, you're focused on the fire hydrant. If you have the little girls near the fire hydrant, that tells a different story. And so, like, that's part of the photography process. Uh, and so it's just interesting to see it, you know, all the different ways you can use that metaphor. Uh, and obviously it's a metaphor for your eyes because your eyes do the same thing. But, uh, but yeah, in photography, it's very stark. How you, and that changes the narrative again. Like well, said, the story. that f- photography relative to the eyes is itself an interesting metaphor for this meaning conversation because mm-hmm. the, the photograph is basically – it, it, it depends upon your eyes to see the photograph, but it is in some sense replacing your eyes because your eyes will naturally focus on things and you, the viewer, won't realize what you're focusing on because as soon as your pupils move, your eyes refocus. Right. And so everything appears to be in focus to the viewer until you look at a photograph where, and, and if there's only one object in focus, then you get them. Um, uh, I think that was one of the brilliant things about, of all people, Frazetta, when he... Uh, in his artwork, he said one of the things he tried to do, talk about someone who created a lot of meaning for a lot of people mm-hmm. using visuals, was what he left out or or what he didn't illustrate too much of. There was a, a def- definite uh, object of focus or at least a shape of focus with particular colors that he wanted the viewer to see. And then the image just sort of faded into not nothingness, but to a little bit more vagueness on the outside. And yeah, it gets brushy. Right. It's brushy right. Where, where it's like, this is just kind of, and that's, there's a, there's a sweet spot in painting. And I, I won't say too long on this because now we're, now we're just talking about art, which is not bad because <laughs> people don't talk about that enough. But uh, uh, there's a sweet spot in painting, I think, right before, like right when, like close to the invention of photography, uh, but not, or, or in and around that area, but before it became really pervasive everywhere. Um, you know, you had super hyper rendered things at one point, like super realistic hyper rendered things that were, uh, uh, just almost static because they're rendered so cleanly, you know, mm. and there was a lot of that in art for a while. Um, and then you take someone like John Singer Sargent, which is kind of a predecessor of someone like Frazetta. Um, and if you look at their, their brushwork, um, you know, it's very impressionistic. If you if you walk up close to that painting, it's like, <laughs> but he's so good that if you walk back from the painting, it looks almost like a photograph. <laughs> you know, like it's it's so it's such virtuosity in That's that. Cool. But the, and and in that era of painting, that kind of sweet spot there, which is kind of what I like, and that's why I like things like Frazetta too, is that you have uh, you have you know the object in focus is tighter, and then it kind of fades off and there's 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 movement that is in the in the in the brushwork uh that is that isn't that isn't like because when it's just precise like a like it's almost like uh there's another thing that they do with uh camera work in fact i have a a, a, a promist filter on this just so it's not quite so granular um is that uh and, and i when i record that we don't, i won't do it for this one because it's live but the uh uh 
the videos that I put out, I actually put a layer of diffusion on uh, because so that it's not because uh, digital images are so precise at this point that they look almost too crisp and grainy. And when people talk about cinematic look in photography, it's usually softer. It's usually a little bit softer and it's a little bit, uh, there's also a frame rate. This is nerd shit, but it's like, there's like 23.6 or whatever that the uh, frame rates are at. Uh, you can shoot it like 120 and it captures like every fucking second of everything. And then, uh, but if you're shooting it uh, and that's good for, you can slow it down in slow motion. But if you shoot cinematic, whatever they, they, they call it like 23.6 is what, which is what most things film on. Um, there's a little blur in between the frames because there aren't as many frames. So there's a little blur between them and it feels more natural because hmm. uh, your eyes don't, your eyes aren't at like 120 frames per second. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're right. there's a little bit of like, not everything's in focus all the time, you know? Uh, but there's that look about digital photography where everything's in focus all the time and it's a little too tight. It's a, yeah. it feels inhuman, but it's like it's in the way that HD 8K does it, it sometimes 8K is like, well, I don't television was better before. <laughs> like I, I feel like I'm seeing too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It feels weird. Oh, uh, before I transition, Taylor says becoming the best possible version of yourself isn't just a physical venture. It has a metaphysical and aesthetic aspect as well, which I not just agree with, but I think sort of sort of what we're talking about. I just wanted to read the hundred percent. Yeah, thanks for picking that out to read it. I saw it come up yeah. a second ago, but it's it's uh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, all all this stuff can sound very technical, and it's just, oh, that's just art stuff. But um, when I was thinking about this subject, you know, creating meaning, so much of it, like I, my thoughts kept going back to dreams and 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 the way people talk about oh, follow your dreams, which can be very bad advice, you know, depending on the nature of the dream. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, dreams can serve different functions. So that might be like, like circular at a certain point. But, um, you know, when you think about the experience of a dream, there is that camera focus and exclusion type effect when it comes to the experience of causation. Mm -hmm. um, I can't speak to other people's dreams. I'm sure everyone dreams slightly differently. But a, a common experience I've heard from a number of people and I've experienced it myself is dreams have a very strange sense of, of causation. Like, you know, I need to go home because it's dinner time and it's nine in the morning, you know, or like, like, like weird non sequiturs um, and false becauses um, because you're like the, like your brain has a focus on certain aspects of, of uh, logical consistency and causality and that's enough, but not others. There's a, there's a certain tone and feeling to dreams that makes them separate from the, you know, 4K high resolution real world, or at least what appears to be a 4K high resolution world when we're turning around trying to focus on everything at the same time. Um, that is absent in dreams. And so there's, there's something very, I think, comparable in the experience of a dream to the experience of good artwork that doesn't focus on too much at the same time. And I wonder if there's some crossover there between the, the, the creation of meaning and the creation of focus um, in art or in causation with, with dreams. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. Um, cool. So uh, the next one I wanted to hit about the, the kinds of objects was, uh, right. 
symbolically or representation, re representation, representationally meaningful objects. Um, and that's the difference from just picking out the, the perfect uh, plate or vase or uh, desk or whatever, uh, is that surrounding yourselves with myth and the things that actually motivate you and the things that are actually, uh, and you know, it, I'm thinking it, at the most basic level, you have like kids with heavy metal posters in their, in their bedrooms and the, uh, the, or that, that Arnold conquer and win, whatever that, that that's everywhere. Uh, you know, there's things like that, that, okay, well, this is part of the myth mythology that inspires me in life. And again, you know, like contrast that with farmhouse modern, uh, is like, like someone like you will like, well, why wouldn't you have a giant painting of a, of a scene from Homer? <laughs> you know, like that's, that's part of what gives your life meaning. And that, that's something that should be around you. Right. And, and, uh, you know, same, like, uh, so I think that that's important. It's a, I, I started doing it actually. I, I never posted them, but I did some mid journey things of just trying to come up with, you know, I was having office office designs. Like there was one with a giant Eagle on a painting of an Eagle on the wall. And there was a, uh, uh, one with a giant portrait of Washington behind him or whatever, uh, having these ideas. And, and I think a lot of men do do that, uh, especially, you know, I think men who realize that their environments matter uh, do surround themselves with, OK, this is this is something that's means what is good and right. Or yeah. this, this guy is awesome or like this. This is I want to be more like this. or This inspires me to be better. Uh, those that those kind of objects, I think are you know, have intrinsic meaning and make your life more meaningful uh, right. by having them around because you're and and the the example i have for this uh that, that i was writing into this essay was uh I've, I've talked about it before i think but uh years ago i went to garmisch partenkirchen i probably say that wrong because it's really hard to say uh but uh, uh even though i was there uh but uh, it's like a resort town in germany and it's a very catholic place and uh, everywhere you would look there was murals on the fronts of the buildings and they were all like scenes, you know, some of them were like local scenes. Some of them were like scenes from the Bible or some, you know, whatever. And, and uh, there'd be these little nooks in walls. Oh, like saints and stuff. Yeah. I, I posted or something about it or something we've talked about it before. And then, and there'd be like little, uh, these Alpine frames. And I had actually ended up incorporating that into Volgang, uh when I was out there, when I had it, uh, it was, uh, we put little quotes and things that were like meaningful because they had these Alpine frames. Even when you go out hiking, there'd be like, if someone died there, there'd be like a little picture of a man <laughs> and this is where so-and-so died. Or like, you know, there'd be a picture of Jesus like out on the hiking trail or something like that. I'm like, there was no place, you know, it's a tourist town now, you know, I mean, I doubt half the people are even Catholic, but if you think about being in that place in a, in a previous time, this narrative structure that is part of all the meaning in your life, you can't look anywhere without being in, in, you know, absorbed and totally immersed in it. And I think that, that that must give people a real sense of like, that, that myth is never that far away. This I, reminds me of an interview you did. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he was describing being a pagan in a modern context that isn't just you know, reenactment. And he was describing some of the things he did, like, like giving money to the homeless, not as some thing of charity, 
but as a as a kind of like paying the trolls so that he could pass by. Well, it um, sounds like brute horse. It might be um, <laughs> leaving uh, food for the birds, putting putting pennies in trees was I think one. Yeah. Um, like all these kinds of like li- little things that that loaded the whole environment with relational significance. Um, and and in some sense, as with the homeless and trolls, mythological significance, which I thought was both amusing and kind of wholesome and kind of funny and <laughs> at the same time. But like that, that, that was a, a a very interesting example, I think, of, of what you're what you're talking about now. Yeah, I mean, if you think if you go to a place where people are doing meaningful things, or you associate that people, especially the West, associate with uh, meaning, like you go to a temple in Tibet or whatever. There's going to be a guy who does a thing in a certain way all the time. And then, the, again, the myths of everything that they're talking about are surrounding you. Every, right. You're just totally immersed in that environment. And even like I was thinking about it, uh, you know, so I didn't just have the Catholic example. Um, uh, obviously, I was just in Athens. And uh, the prison where they held Socrates is like, like, it's a, it's a whole complex, like here is the Agora, you know, where everybody's meeting up and hanging out and talking and you know, there's markets and everything. And then there's the prison where Socrates is being held and there's a temple of Ephesus and then there's the, the, the an altar to Ares and the, 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 there's all the gods were being represented all, in, all within this thing that's like the size of a public park. Yeah. And that's where those things really were. So all those things were together. So if you were an ancient Ath- Athenian, you're walking around town. You're like, oh, I'm going to pick up some bread or whatever. And on the but you're pa- passing by the Temple of Ephesus on your way to pick up some bread and talk to some of the guys down the street. And then there's this other temple and there's a, there's all these religious objects everywhere. And I assume that's what I get the sense that India is like as well. Uh, you know, and like and Shinto, things. Shinto, Japan. Yeah. feels like it has that sense, too, where yeah. there's like spirits not of the forest, but of that particular forest. Yeah. Um, my, my small contribution to that in Washington state was, um, I was on a job site for four weeks in Moses Lake. Um, it was a horrible job experience. Peak of COVID. We all had to wear gloves, masks, uh, goggles, hard hats in like 105 degrees outside. It was awful. But I, um, I stole a rock from the job site and took it back to the hotel where we were being kept up. And after work, I'd go out and lift the rock. Sometimes it was like just over a hundred pounds. It was like a hundred point something pounds. And, um, I've taken to every time I drive by Moses Lake, I look out at the, at the hotel that we stayed at and there's a little shed on the backside and the rock is actually visible from the freeway. And so I check to make sure it's still there every time. And I thought they moved it, uh, not the last time, but the time before. But then when we went over that time, I said, oh, no, it, it didn't move. It's still there. And so it's like this this little bit of, of uh, <laughs> my my own experience um, with with some, some negative and some positive experience loaded into that little interstate uh, drive um, that sort of makes the time go by faster. It's a talking point. But that in itself would not have any, or at least not the same amount of significance were it not for the other lifting stones that inspired me in Iceland in Scotland in Ireland and, and like the Husafell stone and, and the Dinny stones and things like that. They're like this tradition of lifting stones 
created a framework for this smaller, little, minor, personal uh, experience of um, meaning, perhaps. Uh, I don't know what you call it, but uh, this. Yeah, well, you just told a whole story. About it. That's 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 meaning. Yeah. You know, there's this whole narrative that now is around a rock. It's a fucking rock. Like you, <laughs> right. you, you have this whole narrative around a rock. You know, and that's but that's the point. Uh, you gave that rock meaning, and, and that's what we're kind of we're talking about. Is like you you are empowered to give things meaning. Give it a story. Mm -hmm. uh, your life can be meaningful just from doing that. And I think that that's a really important message. I think that the people forget about, like they're just trying to like, they want to receive meaning and it's, you can actively create it. And I think that that's the, the kind of a, the, the interesting point here. So, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, all those things, creating stories, doing these things. I met, I met this guy at this place, you know, like all these connections between things. And, uh, but, you know, for this, this point specifically was more like, you know, the, the surrounding yourself with, you know, the myths that inspire you and so like making making those a part of your environment like so that if you're walking through the house if you're walking through your house you're like oh i'm i'm surrounded by the myths that inspire me like why would that what how would that not make your life better and that's what a lot of people did they had household shrines uh in many many cultures you know whether east west whatever and all kinds of household household shrines um you know all kinds of uh you know if you go into like someone's religious's house from like uh, especially catholics i mean they had you know like 50 years ago. Um, I mean, I'm not quite 50, so I can't, I can't speak to that exactly, but I, I, I growing up, if you went to someone who was pretty Catholic South, they'd have pictures of saints on the wall and like the, all that stuff would be there. And why would, I think again, when people feel like they don't have meaning in their lives, like, well, where, where are the myths that like guide your life? And if you had those, maybe they, you, you, you your life would feel more meaningful. So you surround yourself with those. But, uh, the next thing I think you actually touched on, we don't have to go long on this, was uh, objects with inherited narrative. And you kind of talked about that with a chair, you know, that so, you know, if you had a chair that your grandfather made for you or something like that. Um, my, I, I forget, I've talked about this very recently. I just don't know where or what, uh, in what format. So I'm going to do it again, but there's this, because it's funny, there's a story, it's Pulp Fiction. Uh, did, did oh I, yes i don't know where watch it. about it though but there's this story like that's in pulp fiction where like his like great great grandfather world war ii held his clock this stopwatch up his ass for like, for, like and this is christopher walken telling the story yeah 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 i mean like that's that's just that's just the fucking stopwatch but like whoa that's a stopwatch <laughs> you know and it's because someone made it important and passed it down. It has a story. This thing has a story. Yeah, and there was wasn't there an argument between Bruce Willis and his girl over the over the watch because he got all upset. She's like, I thought it was just a watch, and he's like, it's not just a watch. Right. I don't remember yes. the exact lines, but it was like the the the, the difference in the in the meaning and the uh, the story attached to this this stupid watch. There was some punchline, wasn't there? Um, beyond, I haven't watched it in a while, but yeah, me, yeah, me neither. Yeah, like was the watch swapped and it wasn't the same watch in a ship of Theseus kind of way or something? I don't remember exactly. <laughs> like, well, that actually, that's a perfect myth to bring up in in this context. I suppose so. Yeah, uh, ship of speaking Theseus, of myths and meaning, yeah, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the this is the classic example. Uh, you know what. And for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, you can look this up. There's a page for Wiki, on Wikipedia for it, I'm sure. 
Uh, but the ship of Theseus, the basic idea is there's a ship that belonged to Theseus. And then, uh, but the question philosophically is if you have to keep repairing the ship over the years as it kind of decays and falls apart, at what point is it no longer the ship of Theseus? Like, is it, is it, not, at what point is it no longer that ship? But it just represents that ship. But like, is it still that ship? If you were, if you replaced every single board on the ship, is it still the ship? Yeah, right. even though it's been in the same spot, but it's all. And so that's it's a it's an interesting philosophical question, and, yeah. it, and you can ask it about almost anything. And that's why it's kind of been around for a long time. Is that uh, you know, like, how many things can you replace? Uh, how many objects can you take away, or parts of something can you take away or move before it's no longer that thing? Right, you know, it can't be classified. As and the, uh, I mean, the, the the problem of the ship of Theseus was anticipated perhaps even before the ship of Theseus by Heraclitus when he talked about his, his most famous quote, perhaps that uh, you can't step in the same river twice because it's not the same river and you are not the same. He is not the same man. Yeah. Um, you know, the the Colorado River of today is not the same river that it was uh, not just ten years ago, but I mean. 10,000 years ago, you know, it's done a lot of work. It's changed a lot about itself. It's done a lot of personal work over the last, <laughs> you know, several millennia. And, uh, you, you, you know, you might not recognize it. It might be a completely different river with a, with a different feeling to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, maybe your old friends from high school would say the same thing about you in a positive or a negative way. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And th there's this like, this danger of an ideal of stasis if um if uh meanings were set in some way which almost begs the 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 necessity of the creation of meaning because the old myths are in this constant state of decay or falling away or or obsolescence into a kind of historical museum state of existence yeah and that's that's one of the criticisms of i think museums too, where it's like you know, it's it's a fetishization of objects. Yeah, is a museum. But you can, but you can draw like you can still draw inspiration from the past without finding you know intense personal meaning in living in the past. Right. I, th I think that's the, the 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 classic and the and the still relevant counter to that because um, you know I, I've been like I said I think last time I've been trying to delve into Heidegger. And so much of consciousness is not just about what is present, but also what is absent and, and the connection between the present and the past. And um, without some connection to the past and ideally with a hoped for future, you know, meaning in the present would uh, lose a lot of its appeal, I think, mm -hmm. except for the most hardcore of like Buddhists and other ascetic types um, you know, we like to have goals and we like to have uh, a view of where we came from to get to where we are now. You know, um, I've been, I've been trying out different, like 45 day challenges in, in fitness. You know, I was doing legs in, in, uh, November, December, and I've been doing more, um, upper body, the traps, shoulders, neck stuff in, in December, January. And, um, man, it is fun to see how much progress you can get and look back at the pictures of, you know, 40 days ago versus where you are now. And without that, that, uh, comparison in time, um, 
like there's meaning in the change. And, and so the ship of Theseus can uh, not, not just destroy meaning, but also you can, you can find meaning in the change sometimes. Sure. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. And, and again, it's maybe important to disambiguate meaning from purpose and significance because it's easy to equivocate those, those concepts and those ideas and, Perhaps you can find a purpose that has no ultimate significance, and that's okay. Or maybe you can find significance with no objective purpose, or you know, <laughs> whatever works that, for you. That, that sounds like such a put down. Like you have an insignificant purpose. <laughs> your life has an insignificant purpose. You found your purpose in life, but it's insignificant. <laughs> right. Well, so so the, it's funny. There's this book. Um, there's this book. Uh, by a guy named Victor Frankl, who has been criticized and uh, supported by others, but um, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning, and mm -hmm. he was writing it as a psychiatrist in World War II, right. um, while spending time in a very uncomfortable place um, where a lot of people died, but he noticed as a psychiatrist, he's like, a lot of the people that are dying could have survived. And a lot of the people like that... Uh, wound up living really should have died. And a difference came, seemed to come down to like the will to fulfill some purpose. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he noticed is that some of the purposes are very superficially dumb and pointless. Like the, they had the purpose, Oh, they needed to return uh, some petty object to a friend. Like, like no real like ultimate grand significance, no right. objective significance to anyone, but the lack of objective significance didn't matter because it was significant enough to that individual to give them a reason to carry on and to carry forward. And I think whether people like Frankel or not, like the, the principle of the point I think is, is known and, and holds and you can see it at work in someone like David Goggins, um, <laughs> particularly uh, powerful, almost scary uh, way. <laughs> you know, he's he's got some some demons that he is, is not fighting, but is keeping alive and harnessing like dogs in his sled to get <laughs> of his body to yeah. keep going. Um, he's got reason. Um, he's he's got a purpose. You know, and yeah. uh, and it's keeping his it's keeping him moving. Uh, one of my one of my favorite interesting characters is uh, this guy named Ed Calderon, who um, is fond of saying that uh, stillness is death, and, and emphasizing the importance of motion and, and keeping yourself moving as an individual, physically and spiritually and and um, intellectually and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the last one was uh, objects that are loaded with narrative. And uh, <clears throat> that's something that I have been doing for years. And uh, so, the, so I have a, I feel like I have a good grasp on doing that. And when I tell people what I did, oh, oh you know, like it adds meaning immediately. Uh, so I, I actually have some show and tell here of like different things that I've done this with and things that we do specifically with the order of fire. Um, this this is actually not the one. The other one's in the room. Uh, I brought over the one. Uh, this is the replacement. 
this is the ship of Theseus cup because <laughs> uh, it has the handle because I broke the handle because uh, I've uh, used it. The other one, but, so there's this, this is a gold cup. It's called a, a Vafio cup. Um, I actually found the other version of this is in the other room. Uh, I still use it. Uh, I actually found it in a thrift store in Washington and I just came across it. I maybe paid $15 for it. It wasn't expensive. Um, and I just picked it up and I'm like, this is the most pagan cup I've ever seen. Uh, it's, it basically has, you can't really see it because of the focus thing. Uh, but uh, there focus. you can see it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it basically has, uh, there's two cups. Um, well, I'm jumping from the store. All right. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I found this cup, thought it was the most pagan cup I ever had. Um, and I used it for my uh, ritual cup at Volga. And so whenever I was out there, I would have this cup out there with me. And when we do, uh, at that time, we called Sumble, um, and in the Order of Fire, it's called the Holy Round, uh, is basically a toasting round where you say something important and everybody takes a toast and whatever. So so I used this cup at those ceremonies for years. Uh, so it's been to all of those uh, when I did that. And then, um, then you know, traveled with me. I moved to Utah, whatever. And at some point, I think it was earlier than that, but I found out that it was, it was the most, it looked like the most pagan cup I'd ever seen because it actually was. Uh, it's, it's uh, called a Vafio cup. And uh, it's, they were found in Mycenaean tomb. Uh, I think it's like 30 miles away from Sparta is where the site that these particular ones were found on. And, uh, and so they're these beautiful gold cups that are very, very, very old. And they have their two designs. One of the designs, uh, the one that I have, is called the Peaceful Cup, uh, in which the, uh, the guy who's herding the bulls, again, it has a lot of significance that keeps going. <laughs> uh, but uh, the guy who's herding the bulls uh, is, you know, peacefully, he's kind of tricking them uh, and, uh, you know, like tying up one's leg in the back. Uh, and then there's another violent cup. It's called the violent cup in which they're trying to net the bulls and the bulls are like fighting. And, uh, so, and that was a way that they captured bulls, uh, back in the day. So, uh, and so there are these two cups that were made out of gold. Uh, one of the, one of them they think is actually even older and they think it's from Crete. Uh, so it had been around, it, it had been old when it was buried. Wow. Uh, you know, so then when I went to Athens recently in the national museum, they have the cups. So not have I only been carrying these cups and brought it in the order fire. I carry this cup out with me whenever I go into the Holy round now, uh, not this cup because I still carry the, especially when I have to pack it, I pack the old one with a broken handle because I don't, you know, it's already broken. Uh, so I've taken it to Ireland. I've taken it to Nevada, Nevada. I've ta taken it out hiking in Arizona um, so this cup has been with me for years and years of doing rituals and it's a replica of the, one of the oldest, most beautiful pagan cups. And I've actually seen the real. So that's super cool. That's a lot of narrative for a fucking cup, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but it's really cool. Right. <laughs> and so like, um, when I tell that story, that's like, now when you see me with that cup, that, that there's a resonance of that, you know? Yeah. And the same thing, like, this is something that we do in the order of fire and I've picked that up from older things. Uh, but 
is one of the first things that stuck with me. This, these are the ashes from all the fires that we've made as an organization, uh, except for the ones in Canada and Australia, because I didn't think they have them send me ashes. But basically, I take ashes from every fire that we, we build. There's ones from the one that we were at in Nevada, um, whatever. And I take them home. I use a coffee grinder, and I grind them up, and they're all ground together. And then when I go and do another ritual, uh, like what I just did in Atlanta, I will take some of this, take it with me, put it in that fire, and then when the fire is put out in the morning, I'll bring some of the ashes back, and then they get put into this. So all the fires, it's like an eternal thing of like all the fires are in this it, it part, and they're all connected. That's but, super cool, yeah. So again, that's a way that you can load something with meaning. Yeah, like this is just ash, right? But it's like ash that's been around for all these different rituals and gone through all this history. And yeah. the third thing, and that's all the things I think, but uh, oh, I didn't bring in the Vajra. But uh, again, we also have a gold Vajra that is the Vajra that I have taken. I'll, I, I, I always post on Instagram, have Vajra will travel. Because uh, <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> and uh, I, I've given a speech with it, uh, you know, Orlando uh, on stage, but also I've uh, taken it to all of our same rituals. And when we pass around, uh, when we do the holy round, we uh, hold on to the Vajra and whoever has the Vajra, the person that's speaking, and they always say, oh, this is really heavier than I thought it was going to be. And <laughs> exactly <laughs> what I said, yeah. I know, every, every <laughs> it's, 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 it's a funny thing. Uh, but because uh, it's bronze and I painted it gold. And uh, so it's, it's a heavy bronze piece. And uh, so that that now has been held by, since the first, when we started the Order of Fire. So that, that, now, that object now has a history. And uh, the only one, other one I wanted to bring up was also uh, this is the i had this made by a guy who wasn't a member of the order of fire uh still a good guy um <laughs> he, he uh people outside the order can be a bad out we don't hate him uh but uh uh he he made this uh i commissioned this at my request this is uh, a big you know we, we sell these necklaces but uh this is the big one um uh, and so obviously i've worn that you know when i did invocation of the storm uh but i also have also worn it then in every ritual thereafter. And it has also been to the temple of Zeus and it has been to the Acropolis. It has been to all those places. Yeah. So that carries the resonance of all that with it too. I mean, I'm actually kind of starting to get weird about my shoes uh, at this point. <laughs> like, <laughs> like in this past year, I did so much travel that like the same, I've been wearing the same shoes for all that too. So it's like, becomes like a, yeah, they used to say, uh, um, if there's something almost superstitious about these kind of memories when you start attaching them to things, yeah. uh, it becomes like, uh, you know, there's famous things about like uh, football players who have to wear the same underwear every time because uh, <laughs> they have their lucky underwear or something like right. that. They have a, they, their lucky, you know, uh, item that they have to have with lucky socks or something like that. These gross socks have been wearing for every game. Um, yeah. It becomes this thing that is attached and has this history. And yeah, like I said, I mean, like, those shoes have walked in Greece and Ireland and, and uh, all, all our rituals and all this stuff. And they've climbed a lot of mountains. Uh, you know, so yeah. they, all of a sudden they have, there's all this meaning there. So, well, and Paul Osborne says symbols evolve. Sometimes they evolve into double meanings. A sword can be a symbol of strength, but at the same time be a symbol of tyranny. Um, which sort of dovetails into my own little example, which doesn't have the same kind of loading as yours. Um, this is a 
five or eight dollar knife with a cardboard and electrical tape sheath. It is a pioneer woman pairing knife. <laughs> this is the most the most insignificant, uh, un, uh, unassuming knife you could maybe imagine. Um, but it has significance. And, and a, a certain number of people, maybe some of whom watching this, are already chuckling and laughing because uh, I mentioned Ed Calderon before. Um, Ed Calderon, who I mentioned, does um, knife defense classes mm -hmm. for law enforcement, military, also civilians. And some of those classes involve uh, hanging pig carcasses that people practice uh, with their knives on. And his classes are notorious for breaking knives. Um, and people come in with tops knives they come in with bench made knives they come in with sogs and, and and like all kinds of like very nice knives and there was apparently a class where like three like 150 dollar plus knives broke but someone had brought in a pioneer woman and specifically i don't have the correct one the correct one is the floral handle it's white with a, like a, a pink <laughs> flowery design on it uh uh design and that one did not break that one endured and made it through the whole class in one piece. And it became this, this running joke in Ed Calderon's circles that the pioneer woman pairing knife and Ed Calderon himself had memories of his mother who had a curved pairing knife where the, the blade was contoured on the inside mm -hmm. um, that she actually fought people off with when he was a child in Tijuana. Like she was like something of a badass and could use a knife to like stab people or whatever. Uh -huh. um, and so he actually took a floral handled pioneer woman uh, Walmart knife, $5, oh. $6 knife. And he cut the beveled the edge and reshaped it to, to be the shit that curved shape that his mother had had. And that was actually his everyday carry for um, many years until I think, uh, I don't remember which company, some company got together with him and they made custom versions of uh, the, that curved edge knife, which is mm -hmm. for some reason better for fighting in a certain context. I, I don't know all the details of that, but um, it, it's, it's just funny seeing an expert in the world of, um, you know, combat and survival and stuff in a world full of 150, $200, $400 knives walking around with this, you know, $6 knife whose significance came out of a combination of a single class and some familial background. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, e even, even the sheath style was uh, matches the, the way it was concealed in, in some parts of, of Tijuana. Um, it's a very like, and I haven't used this for very much. It is the knife I keep in my like hunting bag for when I'm going out for like deer or elk or something. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't actually used it to skin a deer uh, yet, but it's um, it's in its future. I'm sure. Um, but it, it's, it's just a, a funny, uh, but, uh, but very contemporary example of like, um, not just meaning building, but in a sense, culture building, because suddenly Walmart, um, who was not aware of Ed Calderon received this like inexplicable surge in pioneer <laughs> woman knife sales and a couple years after that ed calderon post and he still makes jokes about it from time to time like you'll you'll see ed calderon pioneer woman knife um there are all kinds of jokes and stuff out there but now there's like a there's a, a nice culture of 
uh, I think a healthy minimalism when it comes to cost, because mm-hmm. although it is nice to have nice things and I'm very pro people making $400 knives, I think it's awesome. But at the same time, there's this famous like Miyamoto Musashi quote about, um, you know, at the end of the day, swords are just tools mm-hmm. and you can, Im- you can impart great meaning into them, but that meaning can weigh you down at the same time. And there's a balance to be struck, I think between, you know, having meaning and significance and purpose in the things in your life and also knowing when to let those things go. And there was a, there was a famous duel Musashi fought um, where his opponent was armed with what was called a Kusari Gama, which is this sickle with a chain and a weight at the end. And his opponent was famous for, it was a, it was a ninja weapon. His, his opponent was famous for tangling up the swords with the chain and disarming them and they'd be helpless. And he would just cut them to shreds with the sickle. Um, but that was because they attached too much significance, too much meaning, too much spiritualism, perhaps, to their sword, to their to their long sword, the katana. Mm-hmm. And so when Musashi, who had the correct mindset, uh, went up against him, his opponent did the thing with the Sarigami, wrapped his, his long sword with the chain, and he just dropped the long sword, drew his short sword, his wakazashi, and just killed him immediately. Mm-hmm. And the, the ability to the ability to make meaning and the confidence I think in your ability to make meaning is in some sense freeing too. It, it permits you to, to drop the baggage and the, the old things as well. Um, maybe not permanently, maybe not like something dead, not some, not like garbage, but as um, you know, dropping enough weight, enough, enough gold from your pockets so that you can swim to shore, metaphorically speaking. Um, and like, uh, or, or win a duel in, in Musashi's case. So I, I think there's, there is value in creating meaning because I think you, you, you're absolutely correct. And, and all these other people we're talking about Verveke and Jordan Peterson and, mm-hmm. and um, Victor Funkel and all these other people that we, we need meaning. We need a story. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we aren't confident in our ability to create a story, then the fear of losing our story becomes this ossified. And I think conservatives maybe suffer from this. They're terrified to let go of certain aspects of the past because what will we do in the absence of our old stories? And you can still, the, the stories never fully go away. You know, they're never, they're never, sometimes they, they die in their, in their living power, but they never, they never totally die, you know, so long as there's some book out there somewhere uh, that documented the thing that happened once there's this, there's this, this like ember of energy still there, like a, like an HP Lovecraft monster at the bottom of the ocean, maybe, but uh, (laughs) was that, was that quote, the things that uh, eternal rest, uh, never die that I don't remember how the line went. But, they lie uh, dreaming. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone, someone will remember the line. Right. But um, I, I think one of the great powers of, of not, not just having the skill, but practicing and understanding the skill of creating meaning, whether it's in an $8 Walmart knife or a rock or a Vajra or, or, or a cup or any of these things is um, it, it frees you in your ability to, uh, let things go, which I think brings us full circle back to Fight Club. 
and, and Tyler Durden's great superpower of letting the things that didn't matter truly go. Yeah. Um, I, I have felt nothing more um, liberating in the pursuit of meaning than being able to let certain things go in my life, especially relationships um, and, and certain parts of the past, um, mm-hmm. which can, which can certainly weigh you down and, and give a bad kind of meaning. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and, and I, I like that uh, dis- description of it a lot because yeah, I mean, uh, going back to the original uh, thing of like, if your house is burning down, uh, all the all the meaningful things that we're telling you to create will go away. And oh, yeah. that's fine. And might uh, kill you if you try to save them. Yeah, yeah. And that and that can be fine. Uh and you because you know if you have the confidence that you can create meaning again. Uh, you know, like uh with uh, uh you know, these worn out tools build them up again with his worn out tools. Oh yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was trying uh, to find uh, the Kipling uh, line. Rudyard Kipling if, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. Yes. After exactly. watching all your dreams and ambitions crumble yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, to be able to do that, I think is an important skill and to realize that you can do that and you don't have to just receive meeting and that you can actually create meeting. And, you know, I, I feel like, uh, that's such a good book, Mark. I do have to, I, I have to jump in and put, uh, uh, cause I feel like I false advertised, uh, in the sense of, yeah, I talked about the golden temple and we haven't really even gotten to that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, it's part of this. So like, what well, this is like, what, what is in the golden temple, right? But, yeah. uh, I mean, well, I think finding the things to put there, perhaps yeah. the golden temple can have a rock in it. Perhaps it can have a knife. It can have a Vajra. It can have a great painting. It can have a fantastic chair or, or a certain expensive book, but you can be taking things out of your golden temple uh, while you're putting new things in your, your golden temple is its own kind of river, um, because it's your golden temple and you are a kind of river. Um, and, and it sort of comes back to this object of focus too, because the guy you brought up as an example, at the very beginning, Vic, um, he's such an interesting character because, you know, we, we talk about all of these different objects. When I met him at the airport, uh, going down to Vegas for, for the ritual there, uh, here I am coming out with, I've got a backpack and I've got this like military sea bag style duffel bag, which is like, you know, uh, a sleeping mat and a sleeping bag. And I ended up sleeping with the, with the tarantula in the desert. Um, but, uh, like I, I have like all this crap on me and, and there, uh, there's Vic who's wearing like, like, uh, not a pea coat, but just like a, this coat. And he's got this little itty bitty black backpack and everything he needs for the weekend. It's like just just there. He and it, it's it's very Musashi like and Calderon like in the it's amazing what you can the kind of freedom and the kind of ideal you can embody, not by holding on to lots of things, mm-hmm. but by focusing down and narrowing your focus, like we were talking about with art and with with dreams, um on on just the correct things. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of freedom in, um, because our attention is um, zero sum. And if we focus on certain things, it excludes other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we try to focus on too much, like we were talking about with art, this is so metaphorically valuable. Um, you can lose focus on the things that matter, whether those are, you know, the things that are symbolically or aesthetically or 
inheritance or um, uh, personally loaded like you were talking about. And so much of the experience of meaning, I think, comes down to focusing on the correct things and not being distracted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I'm just going to end it there. I'm not going to get into the golden, <laughs> golden temple thing because that, that's a really good like full circle that we went to. Uh, but the Fair idea enough. of the golden temple that I was going to talk about was more like, uh, you know, like more of a mind thing. Like where, what are your values and how do you, you like construct them in, in the sense of like uh, a lot of times uh, when people think of, and when modern people think of mandala, mandalas, they're, they're just think of like little tattoos that hipster girls get or whatever. But uh, uh, if you look at the actual you know, mandalas that they've designed, uh, depending on what version of, of Buddhism or what, you know, whatever it is, in, obviously in Sanskrit it means a world uh, or circle or whatever. And so I've used it for different things like uh, creating an environment. But uh, the designs of them are really, in many cases, uh, blueprints. Basically, they're blueprints for like a world that this God inhabits or this idea inhabits, and that you can. And they're actually you could envision them as being three dimensional, like this is this is like a plan, mm-hmm. uh, and so you could or like a path that you have to go through to to experience this this God or this idea or entity. Uh, and is it like a, like Celtic labyrinths almost? Almost. I mean, if, if you, yeah, if, and, and like I said, they're very different versions. I, I listened to a description of it by the uh, curator of, because I, I wanted to make sure I was pronouncing Mandela right, actually, when I was doing my audio book for Fire of the Dark. And uh, I ended up listening to a uh, curator for the San Francisco Asian Art Museum uh, describe, talk about Mandela's. And he gave it, and that's why I started pronouncing it that way, because that's what he was pronouncing. And I'm like, whatever he's doing is fine. <laughs> you know, but uh, um, so. And he was talking about how they can be three dimensional, in, in like a three dimensional way. And you know, there, there are these things that monks focus on for hours and hours and hours because mm-hmm. they're this this, inha- this where this God could inhabit or this idea could inhabit, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's like a little temple. You know, perhaps like, they uh, perhaps they read influence and persuasion. <laughs> But, hundreds of years before it was written yeah 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 but i mean, I, mean no, I, I just like the idea because it made me think of uh, i think call it the the memory palace idea Have yes you ever heard of that yeah like the yeah this comes idea. from cicero it was popularized yeah. by of all people hannibal lecter and uh <laughs> um but uh yeah he talks about that in De orator it's a it's a skill and and there's a wonderful book that really in detail describes the process called moonwalking with Einstein. Uh-huh. It's about a journalist who goes to become a memory champion at these memory memorization tournaments, which are apparently extremely boring to watch, but fascinating to think about. Um, and you you construct a, usually based on childhood memory or old memory, a house. And the technique is all about converting abstract information into spatial information. Mm-hmm. So all of these all of these cards in a, in a deck of cards or these lines of poetry get um, like compressed, like com- you're compressing a file or zipping a file from abstract information into visual information because mm-hmm. it turns out we're way better at visualizing things. And you place these visualized objects in your house that you've spent weeks mentally clearing out so it's bare bones. Mm-hmm. And the title Moonwalking with Einstein comes from I think it was a playing card that because it was a, a seven of diamonds or something corresponded in his own 
conversion system to uh, Albert Einstein moonwalking at the bed of his, his the end of his master bedroom bed. And so when he was walking through his house, he gets to the room, sees Albert Einstein moonwalking. Oh, that, that next card's a seven of diamonds or whatever it was. I don't remember because my memory palace isn't quite that long. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just thought that was a fascinating idea to apply to like uh, constructing your world, your, your ideological world mm. in terms of like, your values and like uh, your, because you know we're talking about the uh, archetype of the father and so forth. The idea of like drawing lines and, and making values and separating things and whatever. Like what, what what is in your golden temple? I think was my my original idea when I thought we about booking the show because I was like, like what you know the the idea of actually constructing that would be a fascinating like writing project for somebody or like. You could actually workshop. I joked about, I think in our chat, I joked about that. that I'm like, this is another million dollar idea of, of if I were just a little bit more of a hippie, I could do uh, workshops like, let me build, spend the weekend building your golden temple. And it, but it would be a fun project. You know, it'd be kind of cool. Like, okay, what, you know, if this, if this wall is like this kind of values, uh, there, yeah, there you go. Exactly. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, that's more like we don't ever know what's in the fucking temple, but like, <laughs> <laughs> let's find out what's in the temple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what does the temple even mean? Like, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, yeah, that project of like, that's interesting. Yeah. Like building a city, obviously in that, uh, but, uh, you know, build, building a temple and like, what's in it? What's, what's, what's your perfect world ideologically, like filling that in space, what are your values and all that? I mean, I think for a lot of people who don't know, uh, what their values are that could be very uh I, I went to a workshop one time and i won't name where it was because i don't want to talk shit uh but it was like basically like uh um like what are you, what are your most important values in life you have four minutes <laughs> like, and people wrote it down i was like i was like wow that would take me a lot longer than four minutes to sit and do that you know uh it's uh, like you must be very simple people uh but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i think that i think that that's a valuable exercise is, to, is it would be to to construct something like that um, oh yeah you know it, it would be an interesting project i think to work on in a way that i think that like people should you know, construct a character. Like, what is your character look like? That'd be, it's a, it's a good, it's a good thinking. It's a thought. It's a, it's a thought experiment. You know, well, like, it's a fascinating kind of Schrodinger's experiment too, because um, I can't speak for everyone on this, mm -hmm. obviously, but in, in my experience, having written a few books, it's like, as soon as you, uh, I think Nietzsche actually said something to this effect is says, what's the, what's the purpose of writing things down? Well, how else am I supposed to forget these things? How else am I supposed to put these things away except by writing them down? Hmm. Which was Socrates' big critique of writing, funnily enough. But I find that as soon as I finished my book on on hatred, hmm. I haven't had a strong thought about hatred since then, other than an occasional story that will pop up like, oh, that was interesting and ties into that. Anyways, moving on to whatever other thing. Um, you know, you, you once you write things down, it's like you've, you've come to your a conclusion about a point and it gives you almost a sense of closure. And so the minute you finish the construction of one golden temple, it is like, it's at, on one hand, it's like a relief and you're like, yes, I've accomplished something. And on the other hand, you're like, all right, what's next? Yeah. Um, and now, that's my experience with writing books to a certain extent as well. Yeah. 
just it was um, it, I, it was one of the one of the most surreal experiences of my entire life. I was in pest control at the time when I first published Infense Hatred, and it was my first book. It was oh. very exciting. I'd gotten it published, and I I hit publish on Amazon. And I remember the next day I got up to go to work exactly like every other day. Yeah. And I was, I was sitting in a crawl space, you know, putting a, a decaying rat corpse into a bag. And it dawned on me, like, I just published a book and nothing changed. It doesn't matter. And it was, it was amusing to me. It was, it was, it was one of the most sane experiences I've ever had of, of just not to say nothing in my standard state of sanity, but like of, of almost, I don't know how to describe it other than a, a kind of freedom from the expectation of significance in the minds of others. I've accomplished a task. All right. Time to, time to move on to the next task. Chop wood, carry water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do uh, the freaking dishes. They're the laundry. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, like whenever you talk about a pest control job, it always makes me think. I was like, you didn't even know about the, the William Burroughs Naked Lunch. That whole there's a whole weird psycho thing that goes with the pest control thing. <laughs> we talked about it once, uh, but uh, it, it's a uh, just an interesting side thing. But uh, no, I mean, I, I remember I, I published one book or two before that. But, uh, I remember, I mean, I was still doing, uh, delivering produce when I published the way of men. And I remember actually taking the copy into like, there was, there was a smart guy who actually took a picture of me much later. He was like a museum photographer, but he was also delivering, <laughs> he was a museum photographer that was, that was delivering, uh, uh, produce. Um, uh, and, uh, so he, uh, you know, but we always used to talk about ideas, uh, and, uh, he was a smart guy. And so, you know, I brought in the way of men to like into, into work at five thirty in the morning when I'm showing up to load my truck, and I gave it to that guy. Uh, I remember I did that when uh, you know I first published the way of men. So awesome. um, it's very, yeah, it's it's very very similar. And uh, to kind of wrap up your point on on uh, the experience of that, uh, writing is very much a thinking process. So it's you're working out a problem. And, and especially with the kind of writing that you and I do, uh, we're, we're ba we basically write about ideas. We have this idea like, yeah, and you have to work it out and you really don't know exactly how it ends. Uh, and, and so you have to go the whole way through the idea. In the way I said I was writing this piece uh, yesterday was garbage. And then I had to like rewrite it again uh, so that, okay, now this is how it works. That's how I got the full so I imagine thing. I imagine novelists go through almost exactly the same process with a plot. Like, oh, this doesn't work, and they have to go right. back, and they have to. It's just ones with, you know, words fitting together in one way, and ones with words fitting together by a different rule set. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I remember, like, uh, and it's weird as an author because then people read you read your work, and then like, what you basically would be a walking quotation of the work. You know, yeah. like be able to like, I can't remember half the stuff. Yeah, I, said. What the fuck <laughs> did I, say? I don't know. I was working on a problem, you know, like I was working on like a more complete beast. I have to go back to that. I'm like, I worked out this whole thing about resentment and like the, uh, and, and you know, it informs everything I talk about now that the way I talk about resentment, but, uh, Hey, like, what did I say about the noble beast? Oh, shit, that was good. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. there's, there's so much, yeah, because you got it out. You walked, you got the whole way through the end of the process and you it, like, W went through it and now yeah you're on the like well what am i interested in now 
You know, like that's like I said, whenever people want me to talk about like the things I wrote about like 10 years ago, I'm like, ah, that's not what I'm thinking about now. I already figured that out. <laughs> you, know, you know, so cool, man. But uh, anyway, we should wrap this up. Uh, I just wanted to cover all these bases, but I think it's been an interesting co uh, conversation about meaning and uh, creating it and how important it is to be able to create it. And I think there's there's probably a lot more we can explore there. And I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. Maybe it'll dawn on me the next day, like it did with this one. So uh, we'll just yeah. uh, figure it out uh, for next time. But Before anyway, we end, should we uh, yeah. should we should we do the thing where we tell people to like and subscribe and and to follow you on other platforms? They should. Oh, I, I suck at all these things. We, we, uh, should, yeah. we should probably say that towards the beginning. But well, we only need like ten. Later, never. Yeah, we need we need like ten subscribers on this account to to get it to the thousand mark. Uh, it's something like that, ten to fifteen. Yeah. Something that's been fluctuating all day. <laughs> We're getting pretty close. Uh, that Germanic uh, paganism video made a lot of people mad, but it also got us lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, yeah. Please, uh, obviously, if you, if you like this, actually like it and then subscribe. I, I guess you have to tell people that because uh, I'm like I'm like I know more people watched it and liked it than they ever do you know yeah. but it helps because obviously it tells other people to to watch and follow and whatever and uh obviously uh we always say that uh you know this is this is a production of the order of fire um and that's you know this organization that uh we're all a part of and kind of promoting this solar philosophy and and uh, you know, it's obviously a group for men uh, who are all on the same page about those the, these particular things uh, so about the, and if you can want to know more about solar idealism, just uh, there's a video on this uh, YouTube channel uh, as an inter my introduction to it. But the real introduction is the book Fire in the Dark, and uh, if you vibe with that, then then uh, the Order of Fire might be for you. Uh, and if you don't vibe with that, then it's not for you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, again, thanks for watching, everybody, and uh, let me make sure we don't have any more uh, comments. Um, I didn't see any more comments. Oh, uh, Taylor just jumped in and said, good, a uh, good show. So that's cool. Uh, cool. He, he's one of our members as well. And he's a really cool guy. Um, so anyway, guys, um, until next time, stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com. <laughs>